You're listening to PeaceCast, our monthly podcast where we discuss issues around politics, ethics, the arts and culture. I'm one of your hosts, Dave Taylor, and joining me as always is Joel the Yellow Dart Harrison. (laughs) (laughs) That better be good. (laughs) Um, This week we're going to be doing our usual format of conversation starters uh, where we're going to be talking to me about bird watching that important ethical and political issue. Um, in our in What About Them Politics, we're going to be talking about the rise of seeming authoritarianism uh, in the form of new anti-protest laws and things like that um, in Australia. And then for Why Church Why, we're going to be talking about the use and misuse of uh, thinkers like Charles Taylor uh, by a certain type of uh, Christian teacher and leader. But let's begin with our first section, conversation starters. Yes. So I'm assuming, what was it, yellow? Yellow dart. Yellow dart. It's a Homestar runner. Ah, I thought it was a bird. Yeah. Oh, well, I know nothing. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, bird watching. Yes. So when David and Sarah, when they first, we were away once and they said, um, we're going to go bird watching, Mm. I naturally just assumed they were going to make out down by, behind the bike sheds. Turns out, they actually go bird watching. It's true, and uh, so they've taken up this new hipster hobby of bird watching. And is it really hipster? Well, do isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it like know. what all the cool kids do now? I mainly hang out with like you know fifty and six year olds um, doing bird watching. Really, not many mustachioed, okay, uh, horn rim glass wearing right. people. All right, is it because the equipment's too expensive? Probably, yeah. Um, so bird watching. And I thought this was an interesting topic to just hear, to hear from Dave why it is he has uh, placed himself into this strange subculture. Yeah. Um, so Dave, why is it? What is what is what is bird? Tell me what bird watching entails. Yeah. And then what it is you that has drawn you to it. So I suppose I should say just in case there's any proper twitches as we call ourselves really um, uh, out there. Uh, like Sarah and I um, aren't kind of hugely fanatical bird watchers in that we, I like we only have one pair of binoculars between us and oh, things like that. Romance. So I think some people would have very specific ideas <laughs> uh, about what bird watching entails. So like maybe, maybe it's um, my community wouldn't recognise me as as one. But uh, I, Sarah and I have been kind of interested. <laughs> sounds so wounded. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, we're very much on the. The more casual side of things. But uh, Sarah and I, I suppose it was when our... You're a cafeteria bird watcher. Yeah, so probably about for about four years. Um, Sarah and I just kind of realised that we both enjoy like... We enjoyed looking at birds and talking about them and pointing them out to each other. But um, didn't realise that, you know, it took us a long time to, re- to start doing this consciously. But... Um, yeah, it's something that we've been doing for a while. And uh, it's been, it's had this funny effect on me in, on many levels. So um, I suppose two of them are, the, the two big ones are, it's learned to make me re-engage with and appreciate more the Australian landscape and environment, especially around where I live. Uh, and the other one is it's made me um, kind of, learn to appreciate the present and the world. So essentially it's an activity of mindfulness uh, for for me. Um, So I suppose with the first one, growing up in Australia, I don't know whether there's anybody that listens to this that isn't living, isn't a white person living in a non-colonised place, but there's, there's a particular experience of the world that I think some people growing up in a place like Australia that has been colonised, um, where you don't quite feel like you fit in or belong with the landscape. <laughs> uh, I've talked to a few people that share this experience with me, but it's even before my own political awakening as far as issues around justice and um, reconciliation with First Nations people and stuff like that. I've always felt like um, the real place that I connect to is... Um, the Northern European landscape and things like that. Um, and f- I first experienced that and encountered that through, like, some film, but also, like, I used to love fantasy painting and stuff like that as a small child. 
And I think like that's that's the way that's a landscape that I can kind of connect to spiritually, but never but I always feel a bit alienated from the Australian landscape. And actually going over to Northern Europe expecting that I'd have this really deep spiritual encounter and go, oh, I'm in a landscape that my, my peoples belong. Um, it wasn't necessarily like that for me. I li- so, really liked it. So this is interesting because I, um, as some of you may hear in my voice, hmm. I'm not Australian. Yeah. Um, this and probably I think- accounts for our lack of listeners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, the sheer mumbling that comes yeah, out of my yeah. mouth. Being from New Zealand, yes, um, I think New Zealanders find the landscape to be almost continuous with themselves. Yeah, that it is actually at the heart of what it means to be a New Zealand. But Zealander. it's much more of a Northern European looking landscape, though. Yeah, that may be true. Yeah, it does. It, it Hence does. It's Middle Earth. Yes, it does. It's much greener and so on. Yeah. But I, you know, you, man, you mentioned a relationship to the indigenous people for starters. So mm. there is there is at least not a wonderful um, healed relationship mm. in New Zealand, but there is something more. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that there's something also about. Yes, the colonial history. So in New Zealand, yes, you're right, they came and they thought it would be a little Britain. Mm. They thought it would be just like transplanting and doing mm. farming and so on and like, and become economically as powerful in the South Seas yeah. as Britain was in the North. Um, compare that to Australia, I, I always found fascinating um, Meredith Lake's discussion yes. of um, the use of the Bible and, and its relationship to Australian yeah. landscape and so on and how some, of, some people in... Um, at the time of encounter in Australia, they 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 cast Australia as a hellscape. Yes. So right. um, Meredith Lake did a. I can't recommend her book enough. Like it's very very good, and on a topic that I had no interest in as well, the history of the Bible in Australia. But um, she she spoke. <laughs> you had no interest in the topic. No, I because I always just assumed that we had no relationship right. to it. I had a very. Um, simplistic understanding of yeah. Christianity in Australia. Yeah, and the, and and the, was, and the uh, Irish Catholic in you also felt a little perturbed yeah, by it yeah. all. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm three three quarters <laughs> Irish Catholic and, and uh, yeah, I <laughs> yeah had a different relationship to religion in Australia probably. But, um, uh, yes, this health Sorry, sorry uh, um, Meredith Lake, she did a peace talk, our monthly event. Um, she's done a couple of them actually as she was writing this book. And she, you know, she was using different quotes about people's, use of biblical language to describe the relationship between the colonial settler and the landscape. And one of them was they described Australia as the afterbirth of creation. Right. Uh, the land that God forgot to bless. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and it's, um, it's brutal and it's harsh. I mean, when I first visited Australia, meeting you at the airport was a giant mural mm. of all the animals and wildlife and mm. sea life that could kill you. Yeah. And the caption was, which of these is the worst? Yeah. And it was, I think it's like the, is it the man Communism. of war, the box jelly? <laughs> it's <right>. cultural Marxism. <laughs> Death of the West. Callback. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it was like, was it a box jellyfish or a man of yeah. war? One yeah, of those, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, kind of guys and they're tiny and so on. But, you know, that was, that was like, yeah, welcome to Australia. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, if you think, and you think about, um, there's a great, Kind of, I think there's a great Australian film tradition, um, but one of the common themes that kind of constantly comes up is the alienation of the settler from the landscape, and that the landscape is this malevolent force. Mm. Um, and so, the perfect example of this, if you haven't already seen it, Peter Weir's Picnic at Hanging Rock, I think, is one of the great films of all time. About um, would they, would they be Victorian? Maybe later than that. Uh, school private school girls, boarding school girls, all go to Hanging Rock. And or they just vanish, they disappear, and one of them comes back, and it's never explained where they went. <laughs> they just vanished uh, into almost vaporized kind of thing. But the whole time, it's the landscape, it's the rock itself seems to be this malevolent force, and that. And there's a lot of um, uh, early Australian art is like this. This um, that the the landscape itself is this very foreboding thing, and I think that probably comes from that you couldn't do life as a European in European ways comfortably in Australia. It wasn't hospitable to the way that we wanted to do mm. life. Um, so and now what does this that. then link up with magpies swooping at my face <laughs> and Indian minor birds 
Well, screaming uh, at my eyeballs for more blood. Well, you might. The clues in the name Indian minor birds are actually Im- immigrant. Wow, yeah. the right wing, Dave. Yeah, yeah. But um, <laughs> like learning, learning to actually um, uh, pay attention to bird life for me. Um, first, it, it made me stop and look at what's happening around me. But it's also, um, uh, I don't know. I think Australian birds get a bad rap as far as. They're not tropic, like well, in the tropical parts, they're obviously tropical birds, but they're not like the the the, the brilliant birds of kind of the Amazon and things like that. Um, they are very much tied and related to the Australian landscape, and you, they have their own beauty. And I, I love, and I actually love English birds as well in this regards. The the greys and the browns and things like that. There's such there's a subtle beauty, uh, and in like intricateness to Australian birds. And actually, funnily enough, apparently there's a theory at the moment that all songbirds are descended from Australian birds. They all Songbirds started in Australia and went... And then refined else. their art in New Zealand. Mm, I don't know about have that. Have you been to New Zealand? Yeah, and heard what's or? that giant bird, the giant parrot in New Zealand it, that a attacked my car? A care or a kakapo. I was going through... What I was colour at Milford, was it? I was at Melford Sound, uh, Sounds, mm. is that right? Going through the tunnel... Yeah. Queued up and uh, one of those, I think it was a Kia, yeah, went on the, start, <laughs> we, it, Kia, it yeah. demanded food from us and then we, we didn't give it, it attacked our um, antenna. Well, who's who's to blame there? All right. <laughs> I, I guess I was asking for it. <laughs> yeah. So so there's that, there's that side of things. So it made me kind of um, kind of go, there's, I, I'm learning to appreciate these birds in relation to the Australian landscape and things like that. Because uh, I think the, I love the Australian landscape now. So coming back, I, I, I did this little trip to the UK where I got chicken pox in the UK, which is crazy. When I was 30 years old, I thought I already had it, got it from my godson and couldn't go to Ireland, which is where I really wanted to go, uh, which is sad. But I, I had a wonderful time there and really loved the landscape there, but it came back and it made me appreciate this. And I even fell in love with Australian landscape art, so my, uh, which completely changed my taste in art. I had a much more abstract taste in art. Um, before I left and came back and I found myself loving like figures like Arthur Streeton, which I'd never had an interest in um, before. And all my, there's a lot of that art around my house and on my desktops and things like that. Um, so it le- helped me to re-embrace that and, the, and, and paying attention to birds and, and the natural words around me did that. But also as an act of, um, I, as you may have picked up, <laughs> I I tend to be a very introverted person, a very depressive person, and someone that is very much interested in thinking about my own thoughts mm. and playing with the contents of my own head, kind of thing. Um, so I and I and it's an occupational hazard of someone that does kind of postgraduate research is you tend to be throwing throwing these things back and forth around your head. And I also tend to be someone that's really drawn to things like reading books, playing video games and things like that and very much love my own space and my own rooms and things like that and tend to not be. But um, it's actually quite a therapeutic exercise to make a conscious decision of I'm going to go out now and I'm going to go for a walk in this particular place for no apparent reason other than to go for a walk and see what birds I can see. Um, And it's a type of attentiveness to what is Mm. outside my own head. And this is why I think there's an over-representation of great spiritual figures who love birds and love watching birds. So people like Rowan Williams, for example, or John mm. Stott. John Stott was a huge bird watcher. Twitcher. Twitcher, yeah. yeah I learned something. Um, uh, and there's a beautiful description on, I think, Rowan Williams being disciples or something like that. One of Rowan Williams' little pastoral books, he compares prayer to um, watch, watching birds saying that you sit around all day and nothing much is happening, but you sit there expectant, expectantly because something's liable to burst into view. Mm. Um, and that's what prayer is like for him. And that, that very much was my experience. I'm someone who, again, prayer, like, like a lot of my life, is a bit quite dry and dull and things like that, and I find it very hard to do, um, especially do consistently. But actually having, an attent- attent- having my attention drawn deliberately to something outside of my own the contents of my own head mm. and drawn towards the, the vibrancy and beauty of things that are happening mm. around me. 
it's been incredibly psychologically helpful and I, I dare say kind of spiritually helpful as well. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I, that's wonderful. I'm not sure I could get it from birds. Um, I get it from the ocean maybe. Um, the rhythms of it, its movement and so on, and the vastness and its expanse. And I yeah. find that to be quite meditative and so on. But there birds... Needs, but I, need, I think it needs to be something, though, that you can encounter wherever you are. Yeah, right. Right. That's because the great thing about birds is that you can hear a thing and the then thing, be drawn The thing it. with me and birds in this country... They try and kill you. <laughs> they try to kill you. Yeah. And then also I think it's honestly one of the first things you notice as an immigrant... To this yeah. country is that your birds are quite raucous. Yeah, and there is, to my mind, I've said this to people, and it will it's offend. The Anzac spirit. It will offend. It will offend one hundred percent of our listeners. Is that I honestly think there is some sort of symbiotic, sympathetic relationship between the birds, yeah. and the Australian psyche because <laughs> they are just so loud and brash. Yeah. Like we're talking four a.m. and some cockatoos outside your window going, <laughs> you know, you're going, mate, just chill out, just like relax. We have a lot more than that going on. Yeah, you also have these things called channel build cuckoos. Yes. And they come they're like, they're not even, they're not from around here. Yeah. They come down from wherever yeah. and they are awful. 3am in the morning and they're parasitic birds. They go and steal other uh, birds nests and kick out their babies and yeah. stuff which just makes them kind of more awful. Yeah. And they're so loud and they swoop and they are oh. Anyway, most of your birds are kind of like this. Have you ever seen a like a superb fairy wren or like a fairy wren? Yeah. Bright well, that, blue. Just sound, that sounds like a magical made-up bird. It, they are magical, Joel. They are. <laughs> and made up. I <laughs> yeah. saw a lyre bird once. He was pretty – or she, I have no idea. They're mimics. They, yeah, yeah, that was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. They're great. But uh, we, I am getting better. Like there are some birds. I, I've recognised now that the magpie isn't always a dick. No. Like sometimes its voice is kind of cool. No, they've got a beautiful call, yeah. especially when you're out in the bush. Not when they're babies. Like Karawong, you're probably when they're babies, out. they're awful. Yeah. They sound so bad. Yeah. Well, I think it might be time to move on. Hang on. We can move on. But when we were walking with Sarah the other day, she recognised the call of the black cockatoo. Yeah. So I they're want, amazing. Can you, can you give us an example of a call, David? Just, you know, yeah, just... Let me, let me just... No, <laughs> I want it from you. Don't you do it bird watching? Don't you sit there and do calls to the no, birds? We don't, we don't go for that. Oh, though. man. I wanted you to like serenade us. us. They're pretty hard to... Serenade us, man. Yeah. Give us the Indian minor. No. <laughs> the Indian minor. <laughs> oh, dear. All right. It's time to move on to our next section. What about them politics? And we're going to be talking about um, the... New, newly introduced and proposed um, anti-protest laws in New South Wales, as well as a raft of other things that seem to be coming in. And there seems to be um, a bit of a move towards uh, what might be able, may, might be able to be called authoritarianism uh, in Australia, uh, with one article that's been doing the rounds um, lately called, um, I think it's from Crikey, that are giving 10 signs that Australia is becoming a police state. Um, now, I think there is um, room for us to be, uh, reason for us to be concerned in this regard, but I think having a legal scholar on the podcast could be quite helpful in this regard. So, Joel, should oh, we me. be concerned right, yeah. <laughs> um, about what this move in... Um, it... I do fake law, Dave. Jeez. <laughs> um, right. So, so, like I Star mean, Wars you... law. <laughs> That's right. L-O-R-E. No, fa- what was it called? Fairy Twitch Bird Law, whatever that was. <laughs> Jeez. Um, look, you could say, yes, it, it is increasing and so on. But then it seems to me, again, I've only recently arrived on these shores, but you, you do have a history of quite, uh, quite draconian laws mm. applied against perceived or actual acts of criminality. And yeah. you even look at all the anti-bikey laws yeah. in different states at the moment. They're intense. We're talking about aggravated offences that give you 20 years in prison yeah. for what would be ordinarily yeah. an act that would be not necessarily even imprisonable and so yeah. on. I mean, these are these are really, really severe laws. Yeah. Um, you know, for breaching control orders, which means a bikey can't associate with other people and so on, yeah. things like this. But yes, you're right. There are various examples and they're, they're really, they're interesting. So let me give you a few. Mm. Um, we have the Enclosed Lands Crimes and Law Enforcement Legislation Interference Act in New South Wales, which made it basically an aggravated um, offence to enter unlawfully enclosed lands. Mm. And that essentially means mines, yeah. mining operations. And if you interfered with a business, then you could be fined up to $5,500, right? Yeah. Now, this was basically to try and prevent or um, 
to uh, penalise more those who engage in lock-on right, yeah. to prevent mining equipment, say in Adani and these sorts yeah. of scenarios. There's also move-on laws from police when they think there's a serious risk and they don't need a warrant. There's also the Safe Zones Act, Safe Zone Act, Safe Access Zones Acts from Victoria and New South Wales, and these are about um, creating a zone of exclusion around abortion clinics um, for distributing material that is seen as likely to distress or cause anxiety or harassing, intimidating, interfering with, threatening, hindering, obstructing, mm. impeding access to those clinics. Now, an interesting scenario arises where you get the potential, for example, for something like a prayer vigil mm. taking place outside of an, a place where abortions happen, um, being seen as a form of harassment mm. or interference and so on. Um, so then you've got other examples, the Australian Border Force Act, it's now an offence for an entrusted person, which could include someone who's contracted or consulting to work with the border force mm. um, regime to disclose protected information. Um, more recently, uh, at the Commonwealth level as well, we have the Espionage and Foreign Interference Act. And this introduced various spying, sabotage, dealing in secret offences laws. So, for example, it's an offence to damage or impede public infrastructure. Mm. And that means something like transport networks used in the energy industry. Yeah. So if the intent there is to prejudice Australians' national security, and now national security includes a country's political, military, and economic relations with another country. Really? And if you're convicted of that, you can have up to oh. 20 years in prison. Wow. Um, there's other offences around dealing with secret or top-secret information, and there that means receiving and using it. So there's a defence from the media that they reasonably believe it's in the public interest, but what that means is uncertain. So these sorts of laws have the potential to impact upon, you can think of clear examples, something like protesting against the Adani coal mine um, expansion or else revelations that Australia has been spying on a foreign leader or government, say, in the context of negotiating a treaty over maritime boundaries. Mm. I'm sure that would never happen. <laughs> right? So there are clear instances where these laws can affect uh, what we could call the capacity for civil, mm. and by that I mean civic conduct, conduct yeah. that is orientated towards a act of disobedience or conscientious objection that is trying to direct the polity or direct the state or the or the federal government to act better, mm. to do something else, to change their actions. And this all raised to me, raised for me two questions for us, I think. And one is why? Why is there this quite authoritarian or draconian streak to use law regulating quite severely what is could be conceived as civic mm. conduct? And the second is how do we think about? Uh, conscientious objection and acts of civil disobedience. What do we think about the person who locks onto some Adani mine equipment or Bob Brown when he was protesting in the Tasmanian forest or the group holding a vigil outside of an abortion clinic? Um, so on the first one, this is this is almost me. I'll throw it to you as a matter of, you know, anthropological interest. Yeah. You know, in, in my mind, Australia has this um, love affair with yeah. the larrikin. Yeah. And you see actually this in high court. Judgments, yeah. right? This talk about we are country based on political protest, and we we love the rough and tumble yeah. of political speech and larrikinism, right? Yeah. The outlaw yeah. is valorized, yeah. and yet you've got some pretty hardcore <laughs> draconian bans yeah. and laws. So what's going on there? Yeah, it's interesting, and I think it's um, it seems to be uh, particularly New South Wales has a very strong. Um, uh, kind of authoritarian bent into it, although Western Australia as well has um, a lot of, yeah, of these kinds of laws coming in as well. So I and I, it's interesting that you framed it that way. That we're both the country of the larrikin, but also in practice quite acquiescent to authority um, in the end, and we don't recognise that in ourselves. And there was in, uh, there was a great episode of the Minefield. Uh, kind of a couple of years ago now probably, um, where they, um, where they, uh, Walid Ali was asked to summarise what he thought the national identity was mm. and he said, oh, like, without even thinking, um, something like irreverence but ultimately acquiescence to authority. Mm. And I thought that was the most stunningly succinct description of our national character. And that's, I find that fascinating. And I think if you wanted a word for that, I would say it's 
it's juvenile or a- adolescent. Mm. It's the it's the behaviour of an adolescent boy who is trying to test boundaries but ultimately finds security in them, uh, likes to play out um, but ultimately, uh, yeah, Interesting. W- is longing for parental authority. Right. Um, and I think this is something I, ha- like, I actually quite find quite frustrating right. about being an Australian. Right. So my second point here, uh, that was, you know, this is, this is my main question, I guess, is how we think about conscientious objection and civil disobedience. Um, I, I'm interested in this because recently uh, we've seen a lot of talk um, at the highest political levels about mm. a passage written by Paul to the Romans, mm. Romans 13, where he says, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Whoever rebels, rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And this leads to some very strong statements. So yeah. recently we saw the U.S. Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, talking about those seeking asylum and how the law needs to be enforced against them, and this is justifying the removal of mm. children from their parents and so on. Um, more generally, Christian scholars and some public writers have talked about the need to almost always follow and respect civil authorities against at least, for the most part, civil disobedience. So Bonhoeffer, for mm. example, in his Ethics, rights of no longer following the civil authority when doing so would mean apostasy. Yeah. Which seems to set quite a high standard. Yeah. So I'm interested in this as a matter of thinking about, well, is the conscientious objector, is the civil protester in this way, are they rebelling against the authority that God has instituted? Yeah. And my my impression is that there there is a very big problem. Yes. And thinking of them in those terms. Yeah. So I, um, from the outset, I, I have to say, like, I have, not, I have no clue. Um, well, I've got ideas. Um, but, yeah, this has been a big change in my political thinking and through my studies. I think when I started off doing political theory, I started off as basically what I'd call a libertarian socialist, uh, which is a Chomskyite, basically. Um, uh, but actually then became more and more engaged with Thomistic tradition and the Augustinian tradition uh, and came to see that maybe um, basically the idea that that the state has as its purpose to participate in some sort of ideal of justice. And as mm. long as as long as um, the the state and its institutions and the community, not just the state, but the community and its institutions, as long as they are orientated towards um, uh, this this good, then then you are obliged to uphold them and honour them um, in, in, to a certain extent. Uh, now, I, um, as I said, my my I'm very still very unformed mm. as far as coming to solid positions on on things and even my kind of metapolitical views. But I would say, at the very least, a a institution or organisation can be so so um, disorientated mm. that it's no longer um, it, you're actually required um, to to kind of prophetically um, not subject yourself to it. Um, now that that's not and now I I don't get there easily, and I think that there needs to be pretty extreme cases. But in the in the face of a of a country like ours that is so intimately tied with world-destroying um, industries like fossil fuel extraction and things like that um, and uh, creating laws specifically to um, hamper um, uh, dissent towards the relationship between our state and our, our nation and economy and these horrible organisations mm. by creating these recurring laws. I, don't, I think actually the... The Christian is not just it's not just okay for them to disobey the law in those regards. There might even be a moral obligation mm. um, to to do so. But that's a pretty extreme case. Um, that said, like uh, I am not I am not an I'm no longer an anarchist. Mm. Um, I still think no that there's something very good about the fact that human beings can come together and seek something like justice. Right. Um, so I think that's very good. Uh, I'm not anti-police. Um, I have a, my, one of my best mates is a is a police officer, and one of the best mates is a cop. Yeah, <laughs> he's also Chinese, <laughs> so I've got two things covered. <laughs> Shout out to Josh. <laughs> <laughs> but um, tick box. But you know, and and uh, I feel like um, 
uh, a lot of my friends that engage kind of in um, civil disobedience and things like that have a very antagonistic yeah. relationship yeah. to police officers. Whereas I feel like um, if you do do, and I haven't done any real civil disobedience protests, I've done one or two sit-ins, but that's about it. Um, but they, but I suppose psychologically you have to vilify the, the right. police. But I'm like, no, I think where, the only Christian attitude towards that would be I am trying to point yeah. them towards yeah. the ends of what their profession. Yeah. So I mean, I think you can you can split down part of what you said into two points, yeah. right? One, um, I think it assumes this idea that you have to obey and that mm. you'd be a rebel otherwise. It assumes that the act of disobedience or the exercise of conscientious objection is contra law. Yeah. Um, but we could put it maybe another way: um, Is the protester here ever completely a rebel? Yeah. So a pacifist has a fundamental commitment yeah. to peace, yes. perhaps exaggerated if we disagree with them, but they're pointing to something that is an underlying reality that law serves and is, and is even subordinate to. Yeah. They may be doing it in an exaggerated way, as I said, from a certain perspective, but it's still fundamentally they're not a rebel yeah. in that sense. So the protester is not necessarily a rebel, but rather we could call it even a form of civil love. Yes. Um, and the second point is if they're... If we're thinking of them as a rebel, that seems to assume that law mm. has a certain positivistic claim to be independent from moral judgment. Yes. Um, meaning obedience summarizes our relationship to it. Yeah. And this has, of course, the potential for an absolutist understanding of authority, and it's consistent with modern accounts of sovereignty. But the Christian claim, I think, mm. is that civil authority is also subject to the Christian claim. So yeah. before Romans 13, Paul has Romans 12, hate what is evil cling to what is good, mm. be devoted to one another in love. Yep. And so in that way, there's both integrity, right, mm. as in the civil authority has integrity as part of God's purpose, but it's relativized to be subordinate to something else as yeah. well. And that, so in that sense, the conscientious objector done rightly, I yeah. think, and they're probably, a, you know, we can debate different cases, but they're never fully a rebel, now, I think this actually also is articulated even in Christ before Pilate. Mm. You know, Christ appears before Pilate and affirms the quotidian, affirms the fact that this is, it has a relative authority, yep. right? He doesn't come and say, um, you know, I'm simply a world, I'm simply a rebel against the city, yep. but actually subjects himself to it yeah. while appealing at the same time to a truth that is in excess of the city and is in fact instantiated in him. Yeah. Right. And this seems to be the fundamental constitutive tension in Christianity, yeah. right? That there is both affirmation of the political authority as serving the purposes of God, mm. but there is always that those purposes are in excess yeah. of that political authority. Yeah. So it's so it's outside, yeah. but it's inside the law. It, and is this kind of uh, like is this um, tied up with like Saint Paul's um, use of kind of state? mechanisms like citizenship that he claims the rights of citizenship yeah, I mean, and while Paul, working within the empire, uh, but at the same time being almost seditious that's by right. continuing to preach. Yeah, so Paul, and and how does he finish? He's before Festus and Agrippa and he yeah. demands to take the trial to Caesar Yes, using his citizenship in which he is a, and, and his defence is constituted yeah. by an uh, articulation of his Christian claim. Yeah. But he is still within the civil authority. And what does that mean? It means both for Jesus and for Paul, they accept ultimately that in appealing to this truth in excess of the law that is both that is both in excess of it mm. but directs it to its proper purpose, yeah. they accept that they will end their lives potentially in death yeah. or suffering. Yeah. And I think that's the same with the civil disobedience, right? Yeah. It's not civil disobedience unless you kind of accept the possibility that, yes, you will actually be subjected to punishment. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean it's a rebel. Yeah. It's more like you are you are in some ways yeah. the most loyal, yeah. right? The most, the civic lover yes. right? in this sort of context. Yeah. I mean, I, I would agree with most of what you said there with the caveat of like, I, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't just say you should expect to be sub subject to punishment. I think it's still right for us to demand mercy. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I, I, not even call it mercy, but... To, to demand appropriate um, punitive measures be put on civil people doing civil disobedience. So I, I was just thinking about uh, our friends who um, were strip searched um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in Western Australia for protesting, uh, seeming quite seemingly quite vindictively yeah. um, as a deterrent. They were strip searched um, uh, in Western Australia for their protest. Um, 
and like the response from a lot of Christian, conserv- more conservative Christians was like, well, like what did you expect? Yeah, I it? should clarify what I mean then. I don't mean you should expect it as in it has to be part of the logic. Yeah. I, I mean you should expect it hmm. as in civil authority uh, we see is also sometimes disordered. Yeah. And, you know, Christ is put to death by a combination of the mm. religious authority, the crowd, yeah. and the yeah. civic yeah. authority, right? Yes. And all these worldly... And a democratic constitu- vote yeah, as well. Uh, yeah, exactly, yeah. right? And so you should there, there is this possibility always. Yeah. Um, now, if it is rightly ordered, if the conscientious objection, act of conscientious objection mm. is successful, then yes, actually the law and the action of the civil authority should change yeah. in response to it. And this does happen sometimes, right? We have friends who, you know, they go to in front of a judge uh, for a, you know, a trespass, yeah, and so on. And the judges kind of go, "Get uh, yeah. out of my court! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why or, are you bringing this to me?" Or as a matter of jurisprudence, you'd you'd say like, "Yeah, you're clearly acting in good conscience here." Yeah, it's still like you that. are still committed an offence. Yeah, but actually, there is a, a you know almost more of an equitable jurisdiction yeah. as well yeah. to say that this should not. Now we dress that up. And it's not just a dress-up, actually, but we talk about that often often in terms of first offence and mm. so on. You create bonds of good behaviour and mm. so on. But, you know, the conscientious objector, the the act, the, the desire is to change something, to reorientate something. Yeah. So you can't be entirely antagonistic towards civil authority yeah. and so on because yeah. what else are you doing? Yeah. Otherwise? I was thinking uh, you might want to just deflect this as well because I didn't bring it up with you beforehand, but have you read Agamben's book on Pilate and Jesus? The, no. Um, Jesus before Pilate. I can't remember what it's called. He has a fascinating reading that made me... So he, he has a very nice little short book whose name forgets me, but if you look, I think it's Jesus and Pilate maybe. But he has a little 100-word book analysing the trial of Jesus and he, he makes a lot of the, the fact that in the narrative the Romans dress... Jesus up as emperor. Mm. They put the robes on him, the mm. regal robes and things like that. And it, they, they, they are in one version of the story, or if maybe a translation or a tradition, they put, they put Jesus on the the seat of justice as a type of mockery. And they're saying that this is a this is an irony mm. that actually here Christ is condemning the law and actually taking his place as the emperor. Um, over and against the authorities. I thought that was a very interesting reading that made me think a lot about that. Yeah, but, I but think... then I think there's there's almost this parallel, and I don't know what our what our listeners like Shane would think of this, but this um, parallelism between the conversion of Paul, who goes from an individual that persecutes the church mm. to one that serves it, and then you've got the conversion of the entire empire mm. um, uh, later on. Yeah, I, I, think, I think about. I mean, I, I think about with with, with Christ before Pilate. Um, that there is a certain almost hesitation that mm. allows Pilate to have his place. Mm. Like it's not a, and it's the same. Like so, I, I, my reflection on this is mm. influenced a lot by an uh, excellent essay by John Milbank called "An Apologia for Apologetics," right? Mm. And he actually he uses Socrates as as an example as well. Socrates appeals to a truth that is beyond the city, but is still to be absorbed into or. Um, be part of the city's life, yeah. Um, and and in that sense, he subjects himself to death, yeah. Um, and the difference with Christ is that Christ is also appealing to a truth that is in excess of the city, mm. but that truth is that he is the king mm. of this excessive kingdom, yeah. Um, and that can't be accepted, perhaps. But still, and and it's and again again with Paul, we have a certain respect for the city. Mm for the place of these authorities. Yep. Paul wants to go before Caesar. Yeah. Christ before uh, Pilate doesn't just simply slap him in the face and do so on. He subjects himself to that authority and he also seems to offer, he seems to, in his response to him when he's saying his kingdom is not of this world, you know, and um, you wouldn't be in that position if I had not granted you such authority mm. and so on. Um, he is giving a certain integrity yeah. to that. It's not just simply a clash you know, it's not just simple. It's not we can't. I don't think we can think of it as just simply an antagonistic mm. moment. There is obvious um, conflict, yeah, but it's not conflict in a kind of dismantling and rejection in toto. Yeah, yeah. I think I think I'd most 
yeah, I think I'd mostly agree with you um, on that. But Although it makes then, me think about, you know... But then it, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Then, then I, I return to issues about the legitimacy, the historical legitimacy of the state, what, what brings about its... Um, what makes it a something worth submitting to sure. um, as far as a matter of historical Oh, yeah. I mean, that. this is... So when I say... That's why in some ways I use a more vaguer conceptual term of civil authority, yeah. right? Because I think states are a certain contingency and whatever. Yeah. Um, and also you're right. There is a certain state monopolising to itself the uh, capacity to exercise law, yeah. for yep. example. So if I was giving a more complex understanding of comp- conscientious objection, mm. I would start talking about more... Pl- conceptions of plural jurisdiction yeah um that you know you can't you can't think in terms of just simply individuals anymore yeah. enacting conscientious objection in the say in the way of socrates mm. because now you have the church yes and the church brings about a alternative and different authority that is in relationship and cooperative relationship i would say mm. with a civil authority mm. um so you know that this isn't the sum of talking about mm. acts of say religious liberty and so on yeah um, but it does raise because it, it, it's making me think. Because I typically am someone who thinks very strongly about the capacity of communities to engage in formation and exercise a tradition mm. and their own authority. Yeah. But it's harder for me to think about why should I care that an individual exercises an act of conscience? Why don't I just think that that creates a form of anarchy? Or why don't I? Why do I? You know, what's the difference between say somebody objecting to this law as opposed to to take a an interesting American case, the person who objected to a rule that prevented him from wearing a chicken suit in the courtroom. Yeah. You know, if it's all just about my conscience... Or the calen- of, calendar head. Yeah. People. If it's just an act of conscience, Gosh, my, my subjectivity <laughs> yeah. and so on, right? Where When I think about, um, you know, seeing people locking themselves to mining equipment, uh, walking through the forest or, um, you know, engaging these forms or, or, you know, love makes a way and placing themselves into... MPs' offices and so on, mm. I think, okay, I don't think they're rebels. No. I think that it's What if always... they don't respect Her Majesty? <laughs> <laughs> you mean like actually Queen Elizabeth yeah. II? Yeah, like her, yeah, well, then they're just they, wrong. If they don't bend the knee. Yeah, they're that, wrong. I was going to say, yeah. as a monarchist, wouldn't you just Yeah, they're just wrong. They're being a rebel or not yeah. is dependent just on yeah. that. Uh, they probably just haven't, you know, um, really... Met Her Majesty, and by Her Majesty, had I mean, a personal encounter with the in her Majesty. Heart. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they haven't had that reforming <laughs> encounter in their heart. That's right. Yeah, yes, I think we're probably. I think Liam is saying we're very much over time on this. He just doesn't want me talking about the Queen anymore because his sister's already it done it. <laughs> <laughs> What's that podcast called? Should we plug that? We, they don't need any plugs. Oh, we need all the plugs. Um. <laughs> So moving on to our next section, uh, sorry we didn't really get, we never really get anywhere on these things. But I, I got think everywhere. I think, I think we went, we, I we went like, somewhere. I was so for our next segment, we're turning to why thing. church, why. Um, this is the segment where we give our monthly audible sigh about things that the church gets up to that make us sad. And this isn't to say that we um, hate the church or are... A rugged individualist Christians who have an unmediated relationship to Christ or some nonsense like that. No, we love the church. It just hurts our feelings sometimes. Uh, and this week we're talking about the use and misuse of certain um, intellectuals um, for strange purposes. In particular, we want to talk about the use and misuse of Charles Taylor and his brand. You're someone, Joel, who likes Charles Taylor. Mm. I have only read Sources of the Self mm. and multiculturalism and the politics of recognition. Mm. Um, I haven't read his big book that everyone always quotes, but you hit, we, both of us here, uh, both of us love Taylor's work and think it's very valuable, but we also get a bit frustrated by people Mm. using his name in in vain. vain. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I mean, we could have done our YHRH on a, a bunch of things, right? Like, why didn't the Southern Cross magazine, which is the magazine of the Sydney Anglican Diocese, why did it not profile our podcast no. in yeah. its big piece on Christian podcasts in in this region? Mm. I mean, why is it? I mean, it's like oppressive we oppression. Weren't men- we weren't mentioned at Gafcon. We weren't mentioned at Gafcon. No. 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 <laughs> no, we weren't mentioned in that article either that compared Gafcon to Nicaea. Yes. Yeah. Which is a completely legitimate... Legitimate comparison. Yeah. comparison. Yeah. Totally... 100% no problem. Bishop Curry, didn't bring us up. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> anyway, so we're back on to Taylor. Now, okay, I, I have to I have to start that this does have a yes church yes element to it, yes. right? Um, absolutely, people should be reading the philosophy of Charles Taylor because he's brilliant and he's my uncle. <laughs> you wish. Um, his work is essential. And he absolutely does say things that should be digested by the church, mm. right? He is fantastic, and so there is something great. I, I, I laud and I am and I am encouraged by the engage that there is engagement with this. But there are certain problems that reveal whether um, previously we've talked about pathologies and so on. So maybe it's similar here because often what we get is a tame tailor, a watered down tailor, or a tailor who seems to be more or less on a particular side. Mm. So let me first explain who Taylor is and why he's important. He's a Canadian philosopher and a Catholic. He's written a number, as Dave said, of very influential books, not least of which is The Magisterial, A Secular Age. It's Mm. something like 900 pages. In this book, Taylor articulates an understanding of secularization as a movement from a society in which belief in God was unchallenged to one in which it becomes one option amongst many and frequently not the easiest to embrace, he says. Mm. And within this, he discusses how God is treated as absent from various life spheres. Uh, These are now construed as acting according to their own internal rationality. Economics is about maximizing gains. Politics is about the greatest benefit to the greatest number. And he has a genealogy that traces this through a kind of history meets practices. Now, central to this whole argument is what is called the reform master narrative. And in essence, he traces multiple movements in which Christian elites periodically demanded that the masses, you and I, exhibit a more disciplined and more intense Christian life. And the Protestant reformers are not the only characters in this narrative, Mm. but they are central. And I'm going to simplify for a moment. He argues, Taylor, that is, that there was a changed understanding of God's relationship to creation. Uh, The now covenanting God, he says, established as a human order by divine command. And our task then becomes, Taylor argues on this account, to reorder the world, to control it in Mm. light of God's divine commands. But Taylor continues that this gave way to, over time, a deist and distant God. And then the understanding that, in fact, all along we were simply uncovering our own rules for how best to order or discipline society, the world around us and ourselves. God, therefore, is needed to do politics or, or economics, we invent a purely humanist ethics of discipline and control, and this eventually becomes a search for my own authenticity. So within this nar- narrative, Taylor has some pretty critical things to say about Protestant reformers. Um, he notes, for example, that the doctrine of penal substitution plays a role in cultivating unbelief mm. because it repels people towards deism. And more generally, this doctrine of penal substitution shifts our understanding of salvation from a union with God in which we participate in God's own life to undertake works of charity or love and thus form a true society to an extrinsic legal transaction in which the wholly unworthy person's debt to God is cancelled in Christ's sacrifice, i.e. some Mm. kind of penal substitution. Charity on this later account becomes something more like a consequential afterthought. We should act benevolently out of gratitude for the contract being satisfied. So it seems to me, at least, if you take Taylor seriously, you have to wrestle with whether and how trajectories in Christian thought, not simply Protestant, but mm. especially so, have given rise to and succor. Is that how you say that sucker. word? Sucker. Yeah. That's how we'd say it. Yeah, right. Like, oh, well, I don't know how I say it. Yeah, sucker. Yeah. <laughs> to the very secularization that Christians often lament. So that's how I kind of read a lot mm. of Taylor or some of Taylor, some central themes. But instead, a number of Christian writers seem to appeal to Taylor as a kind of evangelical missiologist, an apologetist in lockstep with them. So a couple of examples. A uh, prominent Christian blogger from this neck of the woods, he laments that we've been marinating in the modern social imaginary for the past three decades, appealing to Taylor. Mm. Now, of course, by this dating and the content of his writing, he means something like sexual progressivism. Mm. But in contrast, when Taylor talks about the modern social imaginary, he is referring to ourselves as constituted by rights as individuals seeking mutual mm. freedom and yep. forming a modern society that protects such claims through property and contracts, yep. most notably. So not three decades yeah. ago, try Locke in the 16th yeah. century. So, But also, um, so the exact type of rights discourse that they would appeal to for religious liberty. Like, yeah, precisely. So right. the, the, very, the very thing that they rely on to secure their own um, privilege or whatever right. is the very thing that Taylor accuses of um, making... Christianity less and less intelligible. Right. As a, yep. yeah. So another example, 
He talks about the same blogger, talks about the failure of Christians to declare uniformly in the public life. It's all about grace. He says this is what Taylor criticizes the church for. Namely, he says that we allow a secular framework to set the rules. That's Mm. bizarre. Mm. It's bizarre because Taylor has some sympathy for the secular rules that the secular Mm. framework that are being criticized. But because also Taylor would never say it's all about grace, at least in this kind of vein, Mm. precisely because being a Catholic, he understands the purpose of life as salvation is to instantiate charity, to work with God, to build a community of love. Mm. Agape, he emphasizes. More generally, I've seen discussions of a secular age that appeal to it as an indictment of the contemporary culture having no anxiety over sin, which is kind of weird considering Mm. Taylor's whole point is about elites trying to force Christians to get it right. Yeah. Um, That a secular age apparently offers a blueprint for the coherency of evangelical preaching. Mm. I don't know where to begin with that. Mm. And also that it is a prod. The book is a prod towards finding the, quote, pure religion of reformed thinking in which God sets the terms. Mm. Now, that seems to me to be precisely the kind of segue to deism that that, yeah. that Taylor is cr- criticizing. Yeah. So here's my here's my question. Is this just me yeah. being a academic type? Is this just me being an academic type who is ultra hypercritical of somebody using a scholar in the wrong way, yeah. right? Or is there something else going on here? So I can give other examples. Yeah. So people quote uh, part of so- theology and social theory, John Milbank, yeah. once there was no secular. Yes. Yes. Yes, this means everything <laughs> I've ever thought it should mean. Yeah. Not taking into regard yeah. that ta- uh, Milbank is incredibly critical of a lot of Protestant thinking, yeah. that he's inc- incredibly critical of rights discourse and so on and this sort of thing. Or another example, a prominent Christian outfit in this neck of the woods talking about Samuel Moyne and yeah. saying, Samuel Moyne says, Christians invented human rights. Okay, that's interesting. Samuel Moyne's entire project is to say we must get over this yeah. in order to find a new form of emancipation yeah. because all these Christian writers are contrary emancipation and they're all too conservative for yes. me. Yeah. Yeah, right? absolutely. So, so I, what 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 does this what kind of pathology yes. problem does this do, reveal? Do you want me what, to analyze this? Yes. Things? Give me your take. So I don't think that um there's a lot to say. So I think I think you're right to be kind of so my response is I actually feel kind of offended in that I because I, I love Taylor and think he's brilliant. He's one of the most important theorists around these issues that there there has been. Like he's very, very important. I feel it's almost disrespectful um, to right. him in, a, in an odd way to just not take his ideas seriously. And it's also a missed opportunity, right? So uh, if you read Taylor or, I don't know, I don't read Milbank, let's take Taylor or Alistair McIntyre is another person mm. that people like to to draw on. Uh, in sim- using him in similarly mistaken ways. We're waiting for a new Benedict. Yeah, so the Benedict option seems to draw on that idea, although I, he, like, yeah. So um, they these people are an opportunity to actually take inventory of have I grasped the depth and width of the Christian faith adequately? Whereas what they what people seem to be doing with them, the kinds of people that we're talking about, is pragmatically using them as a as a as a signpost to to get some sort of epistemological um, status mm. um, or authority. Mm. So they can say these guys identify with us. They're very well respected and famous uh, and have achieved a lot. Um, I'll I'll attach them to my essay like a first year student find, trying to find as many references as possible. And they're explicitly Christian. Yeah, and and that's my authority. Whereas, I, I, like you said, you're absolutely spot on with with Taylor, especially the the people that tend to cite him in these ways are the problem, according to <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. according to Charles Taylor. Um, uh, yeah, so I, no, I don't, I don't think, I don't think you're wrong. But it's also just this: the problem is actually much deeper as well, in that it. There's a virus of pragmatism mm. in the church as well that we don't even, and it gets back to something that I was saying in, in our previous episode, we don't, we don't seem to really care about the medium right. 
Um, we, because it's a zero-sum game evangelism for some a certain type of evangelical, any anything that we can say to convince people and get them over the line yeah. is right. There's no attentiveness to kind of discourse ethics. What is the shape of commu- Christian communication? Mm. There is there is there has to be a a way of communicating Christianly, and part of that is actually not just utilizing the name of someone to get your argument across, taking their ideas seriously, doing self-criticism through their work. And so, for example, like, you know, I hate to go on about church signs because it's an easy target and things like that. But, like, there, there, is, a Christian, there is a Christian aesthetic. <laughs> there, is, there is such a thing as a Christian way of communicating and part of that is, is not just being pragmatic um, yeah, and then it gets worse, but you're right, it's pragmatic. Mm. But then when it's challenged, it gets fascinating. So yes. I find this as a academic to be difficult, mm. that when you point out that this is not actually what this person thinks yes. or this is not the fullness, in this sense that you can yeah. be selective, but that selectiveness should be explicit. And if you're attentive to the fullness, you would have to engage in some pretty rigorous self-criticism probably. Mm. And so pointing this out, the response is often, well, it's not, I'm not trying to be academic yeah. or I wasn't writing a persuasive piece. So an example of this was this week in mm. which this Then why this are piece, they using this, Well, this is, this is the bizarre thing. Yeah. This piece was written about how Gafcon is the new Nicaea. <laughs> and uh, some people said, oh, this seems like a bit of a strange piece. And the person, the minister posting it said, look, they're not trying to write an academic article. They're mm. not trying to be persuasive. I think, what is the point of writing mm. if you're not attempting to be persuasive? Mm. And how is that a defense? Yep. If I write an essay and it's not a you know peer-reviewed article, mm. I still need it to be you know, have my T's crossed and my I's dotted to have the integrity integrity of what I'm writing. Yeah. In fact, I want to make that even have more integrity in some ways because I can't assume that the reader knows all the things I'm talking about. Whereas yeah. as a, in an <clears throat> academic context, you can probably take certain things for granted. This, you don't want to be subject to as much misunderstanding and so on. Yeah. So th- that's annoying as well, this idea that, um, that there's, a, there's a license for misuse yeah. because, they, because it's seen as doing something other yeah. In the academic task. Yeah. And like to finish, we're running out of time, but to, to finish on a more positive note, like what I would say to ministers who want to be doing this kind of, who, who want to provide a context for this kind of cultural criticism, cultural theory, things like that, to understand our own age. I mean, if you're an Anglican minister um, or a leader in an Anglican church, your churches are full of of academics and people who have studied these things who are rolling their eyes every time you misuse these ideas, especially around the inner city kind of area, why not just draw on the experience and expertise of the people in your, in your congregation um, and, and actually uh, instead of needing to be the expert in these areas, draw on the experience of the, the academics in the church. Let them serve the church. Well, the, uh, yeah, and partly or the alternative is sometimes you, you don't need it. Yeah. You can articulate your own argument. Yeah. And you know what your argument is and you can articulate it and make that stand or not on its own terms. Yeah. You know, this is like you said, it's kinda like when students want to make a point and they feel that they always have to quote. Yeah. That's you right. Know, you know, and yes, they should be doing references and so on. Yeah. But, you know, they always have to put it in a quote. And yeah. You're going, Well, actually actually as a matter of the actual genre you're mm. in, you don't necessarily have to be engaging in that. Yeah. Now this is this is as we said, this is a this is meant to be a sense of saying, you know, do read Taylor. Yeah. He is wonderful. Yeah. And even like, and like a lot of this Smith yeah, is, yeah. So, um, is so more accessible. I think that yes, that's part of the problem though. Yeah. Everyone reads Taylor through James K. Smith's yeah. uh, prism. And largely that's fine, but he does completely and utterly um, deflect away from the criticism that is of Protestant reform and yeah. so on, of course. Or you could just listen to us. You could listen to us yeah. because we give what essentially, I would describe it like, um, uh, you know, when I give feedback on a student's essay, it's a form of devastating encouragement. <laughs> <laughs> That's the new name of the podcast. <laughs> devastating, devastating encouragement. encouragement. Yeah. Okay, Dave, I think we're going to finish, but um, do, I, I'm going to round us off, but do, can you just, while, while every head is bowed, can you just give us a bird call? <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that, that's a lyrebird yeah. doing uh, an ochre yeah. um, impersonation. Yeah. Do you yeah. know lyrebirds sometimes imitate like chainsaws and things like really? that if they hear them? 
and uh, or Do you a want mobile, to give us that a instead? mobile phone call. Are you That's leading really into something now? No. Or? no, I saw one recently off of Mount, Mount Toma. Yeah, you're just teasing now. Yeah, yeah. We're going to round off. Uh, thank you for joining us once oh. again on Peacecast. As always, can I encourage you to follow us on Twitter at Peace Talks Cast? Can I encourage you also to leave a review? We are on iTunes and we are on Stitcher. Mm. And we would love to hear your feedback. We would love to uh, hear from you, whether it's about something you think we should be discussing, Mm. some sort of conversation starter, some sort of what about them politics, or some sort of why church why. What is it that makes you cry in the shower? Mm. This is the sort of thing we're asking really, isn't it? Yeah. How have you heard Miss... Uh, Charles Taylor. Just, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. I do. Do uh, which do favorite academic of yours has been maligned? <laughs> <laughs> do uh, yeah. Do like and follow us and share on uh, social medias because the bigger podcasts are making fun of us. <laughs> <laughs> and then maybe we'll make it onto Southern Cross. Finally, yeah. <laughs> Finally, next gap. <laughs> we will climb that Everest. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Bye. Okay, bye.